Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Good morning, and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thank you for joining us. Later in the hour, we're going to get in touch with some people who are doing great things called the Urban Specialists. And it is Earth Day, so we got a special segment about that as well. But first, starting us off is Mark Okada, the chairman of the Board of Directors at Education is Freedom. How are you doing, Mark? Chris, I'm great. How are you? Just wonderful. For those who don't know, tell everybody what Education is Freedom is all about. So Education is Freedom is a nonprofit that partners within the uh, educational system. Mm-hmm. And specifically, we help um, kids get to that place where they know where they're going to go after high school. They're going to go to college or they're going to go to trade school. Um, but we are really the, the, the counselors and the mentors to help them figure out their future. Um, our, our code line is, is um, greatness needs guidance. And, uh, and so <clears throat> that's what we do. We do it in middle schools. We do it in high schools. Um, and we've been doing it for over a decade now. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly rewarding and important work. Um, but uh, that's what we do. We help people get into college or, or get into trade school or get a job for the summer. Um, but we are there, really. They're, they're trusted advisors and, and mentors and counselors. Um, and uh, to help them along the way um, as they embark on a really important part uh, of their their uh, their future. Education is freedom. It sounds like a great organization, and I would like to know how you got involved. For those who don't know, you're the uh, co-founder and CEO of Sycamore Tree Capital Partners. You're also a successful investment director and portfolio manager. What made you get involved with this particular organization? Because I'm sure you can do a lot of different things, including you are on the board for EIF and the Japanese Evangelical Missionary Society. Well, I, I've had been the, the privilege and honor of serving in a lot of different organizations. And I would tell you that as an investment professional, somebody who um, really puts capital to work mm-hmm. and wants to see that capital grow and have an impact, um, a lot of the things that, that, or the opportunities that come across my desk, I pass on because, you know, it, it may be, it may be policy related, or it may be about creating awareness, or it may be about a lot of things that, let's, let's, let's face it, that it takes a lot of patience to get involved in some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. The, the fruit of your labor isn't something that you're going to see directly. Um, and so, so I, I really, um, uh, jumped on the opportunity to join the EIF board um, about six, seven years ago, um, because what I what I saw was an organization that was actually making a difference. That was doing something that had scale and impact, and and was making a difference in uh, a very critical part of the ecosystem here in in Dallas and in Texas, um, where. If, if I got involved, maybe I could learn a whole lot about that, but also, um, you know, lend some skills and, and help and some capital and some guidance and make the organization better. So it's been a, it's been a fantastic um, opportunity to work with Marsha Page and the team, and the, our board is, is really fantastic. But, um, but it's been an honor for me, and, and I really enjoy uh, the work. It's, it's um, in addition to 
all the other things I have going on in starting up this new company and in in uh, really building on on the success and the things we've done in the past and at a at a very amazing time, you can imagine what it's like managing money. Oh yeah, in the context of, of the the backdrop of what we're dealing with. Um, but this is this is incredibly rewarding and quite a, an honor and a privilege for me to be involved. Okay, education and freedom. You guys are involved in like thirty five schools, most of them DISD, and you're also distributing to to students. They have an opportunity to receive a hundred and fifty three million dollars in financial aid over the years. This is outstanding. I, I'm trying I'm trying to think about. You mentioned how things are going nowadays, especially during this pandemic. The calendar year has been absolutely so different and people are doing things so differently. What has been some of the challenges for you guys just over the last year, as opposed to what you normally are able to do? So let me break this down a little bit for the audience. So they kind of really get the joke of what we're doing there. There are thousands of nonprofit educational um, uh, groups Mm -hmm. that are involved in helping students along the way. And, um, and so I think, I think it's, um, it's important for people to understand really specifically what you're doing because there's so many of us. So, so we partner with the school districts in working with their counseling offices and specifically being that on-campus advisor that um, helps a, a, a student figure out how to get into college, how to apply for scholarships, how to fill out their, their forms. Um, and, you may say, oh, well, shouldn't the school do that? And I, I think it's, it's very um, instructive to me and what I've learned in my time with Education is Freedom that there are places where nonprofits can actually be much more effective in partnering and enhancing the work of the district um, and the, well, the district, and the, the, think of them as the government, right, in, in, in really helping students along the way. So yeah. there's this, this fine line of, of how do you get a student um, to fill out all their forms when those forms may be something that the parents may not want to fill out or they're, they're, they're worried about or they're scared about. Mm-hmm. So a nonprofit can, can come in and partner in the situation and really create that trusted advisor relationship with both the student and their parents who may not understand that this is critically important. And so we do this. We, we have counselors on every campus, um, and normally they'd be meeting with, with, with these kids. We do, um, we do over 45,000 student meetings a year. You can, you can just get a wow. sense of the scale mm-hmm. and the depth and the amount of time that it takes um, to do this. And so we're committed to do that. Um, and then... Um, we, we help them fill out all the forms. We help them find out where they would be a good fit for college. We, we, and especially, we want to help them because most of them are low-income. Um, these are first-time college-goers. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people whose parents have no idea what college means or why it's important. Um, and so we want to help them get there, right? And if you're, if you're the first kid in your family that goes to college can imagine what that does to the future of the entire family and the ecosystem and how that really makes our community in in, uh, in Texas that much stronger so so we want to be we want to be effective we want to help them figure out how to make it affordable so that 153 million dollars scholarship money that you talked about that's that makes a huge difference right? yes but it there's does no, there's no no chance that these kids are going to figure out how to get to that without somebody helping them and and we've all seen all these stories about the scandals of people cheating to try to get into college and all of that. I, I think it's reprehensible, but it's, it's a small story. The, the reality is there's so many resources that are teed up to help students get to that place, but they need someone who's going to walk them through it, who's going to sit there and say, okay, you're a good candidate for the Dallas Promise, or you're a good candidate for this special school, you're a great candidate for the, to go to Harvard, or you're a great candidate to go here. Someone's got to be building that relationship with that student one-on-one on a daily basis to be available and to be with them and to say, you know, this, this is where your future lies. Let me help you get there. And that's what we do. So that's specifically what we do on a daily basis. And we are 
Um, you know, we're involved with, with thousands and thousands of students. Um, last year, we helped over 7,000 seniors and 35,000, over 35,000 students. So it, it has a, a big, big impact and a big scale. Uh, and, and then you're, the, the point of all of this talking for me is we were talking about the pandemic and how have we had to adjust what we've done within the context of you know, shutting down schools and in-person and all these mm-hmm. things. And so The virtual classes in the school rooms. Right, and we all know how, how difficult that's been for us. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got three and, kids myself, and yes, they've been learning virtually. Right. <laughs> Some of them are great with it, and yeah, I, I would guess exactly. it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. So the challenge for us was we, we had to quickly move to a hybrid sort of model where we are doing things um, virtually and then eventually in, in person where we are we're allowed to get back on campus. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm very proud of Marcia Page and her team of, of just amazing um, counselors that they did that almost seamlessly. They, they pivoted very quickly within a crisis mode. Nice. Um, and the good news is, is that relationship that we had with the students is, is even more valuable in a point where you go virtual, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's knowing the other person on the other side of the screen or the phone or where, however you're, you're interacting with them that makes that connection still valid. You know, it, it's not just some, some screen talking at you. It's somebody that mm-hmm. knows you and is connecting with you. And so that the value of what we did has done and the, the impact has actually gotten better um, in, the, in this time and more, more important in a very difficult time where, where I mean, I'm, I'm so proud of these students. Um, you know, I, I certainly had it very easy when I was going to college back in, in the 80s. Um, and uh, was raised in a house where my dad had a PhD and certainly understood what what the value of education. But mm-hmm. these students jump through so many hoops normally, uh, and yet they're doing it in this period, and they're still getting there. And um, and wow, it's it's humbling to work with them. I'm so so proud of their resilience and and their success. And, and you know, we're just great to be a part of it. You know, I'm so impressed with this this program, Education is Freedom. Mark Okada, he's the chairman of the board of directors. And I, you brought up an interesting point. There's a lot of teachers and educators who are helping educate the kids, and they want to help them further their education, but they, quite frankly, don't have the time to sit down individually with each student, even though they care about the students, to say, okay, here are your selections of colleges, or this is how you can get, you know, a scholarship. You guys fill in that void, and I think that's so important because there's so many families that do value education, but they either don't know where to find the resources to get their kids, you know, a a next-level education, or the kids want to do it, but they don't know exactly how to go about it or what opportunities are truly there. They may want to go to USC or to UT or to Oklahoma or to Florida State, but they just don't know how to get there, and they know they don't have the funds this is why I think you guys are so valuable. Can you? I know you've got some stories of how you've probably changed a few lives here and there. You're killing me, Chris, with this USC comment. You, you know, <laughs> in my bio, I went to UCLA. That's quite but, all right. I got a lot of friends yeah. that went to UCLA as well. <laughs> painful, painful. But but you're right. I mean, it, it it is it is exciting and 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 impactful and powerful. You know the the. One of the other things we, we do that I didn't mention that says related to your comments is we administer the, the, the Mayor's Summer Works Program. Mm-hmm. And this is really an evolution of the Mayor's Internship Program that was um, uh, established several years ago. And we're helping students really understand what it means to get to that that the end of the process where they're actually working within a, a children's health or within a, uh, a JP Morgan or within, you know, some of these, these great institutions um, that they see and, and in administering the, the summer jobs program, but, it, but it's incredibly valuable. It, it, it really makes a difference um, uh, for those students and they make, they make some money too. I mean, oh, yeah. it's a summer job. They get paid. 
And so, so that, that's, that's obviously very, very important in a time where the, the economic reality for a lot of, of students and families is difficult. When you can help a student make money, but more importantly, understand why they're going to college or why they're going to training, um, and then get some real um, workforce readiness at a time when that's just so critical. Um, you know, it, it's just a win-win-win. Um, and so that's the other the other big program that we're involved in, and another way that, that I, I think the, the the listeners at home can understand why. You know, we 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 love their support, we love to have them involved in what we're doing, but but um, it, it's it, it's truly a lot of fun. Here's a, a a number, some numbers for some of our listeners to show the impact of what you're doing. The workforce training hours completed so far over the years. 8,589 for these for these kids. And I think that's so important because, like I said, to introduce them to a different kind of environments that they may just see on television or in movies, and it's more than just and nothing against the fast food industry because that's the first step for a lot of kids getting a real-life job. But these are real opportunities that can be life-changing, not for them, but just for them and their families as well. Absolutely. And there's a lot of pressure on these kids to go just go get a job at, at you know a fast food restaurant or to work work in the family business uh-huh. you know, wherever it is. Yeah. Um, but but uh, studies have shown that that two more years of post high school education can lift someone out of poverty in a way that nothing else can. It is it is it's tried and true research and data that shows that that a post-secondary education is the is is freedom. It is mm-hmm. it is the way that that financial freedom and really helping people realize their potential is going to happen. And so this is a, this is a, a very critical time. And we, we talk in the educational world a lot about about persistence and and all these things. But it, unless you you can help a student understand why why am I doing this. Why is this important? Let's face it, you're, you're just not going to get the sort of impact and movement because, it, it, you know, they have choices. There's, there's, I can make, I can make eight bucks an hour doing this, or ten bucks an hour, or I could, I could sacrifice that and get to the place where someday I'm Chris Arnold. You know what's great about these uh, these these opportunities you're presenting to the kids? They've earned it. They just didn't have oh, yeah. the opportunity or the access to it, and you're showing them how to maximize it. I think for a lot of kids, it's all about showing them a plan, help, working with them on a plan to move forward. You know, if, if you're able to make a plan and map some things out and check off some things along the way, you see the progress and you feel fulfilled. That's what I've noticed when I've talked to kids, and that's what I've talked with my kids about, mm. is making a plan. So I just love this opportunity that you're presenting to these kids. Another thing I'm loving is that you guys have a yearly event. It's almost like a reward on their hard work, and that's the Evening with the Stars. And I think it's happening at the end of this month on April 28th. Can you share with us some of the things that are going on with the Evening with the Stars? Absolutely. So recognition is one of the key parts of our advising model, right? You, you can show people a plan and all this stuff, but mm-hmm. you, these, these are students. These are kids. If you give them some recognition of the hard work that they've done and show them what, that they are truly special, um, then it, it really makes a difference. It, it, it brings everything full circle to why this is important. So our, our recognition time is is coming up at the end of the month. It used to be in person. I miss those times when we could meet the students and the families um, and the teachers and the, and the educators um, and the administrators that really make this all possible. I promise so you next coming. year at this time we'll be back. I promise you. <laughs> From your, your lips to God's ears. Exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm in that boat too. But, um, you know, we, 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 we want to recognize these students that have overcome so much and persevered and have the resilience and the grit to make it there. And so we have something called an EIF Scholars Program. And that's where we're going to select the, the, the kids that are, that are at the top of their class. Um, and we're talking, you know, 34 different high schools, um, and we're going to choose them. And they have to qualify, and they have to, 
to really um, uh, do a lot to, to get there. But these students that, that get there, you know, we, we want to recognize them, and then we want to do something very important, and that, that is give them scholarships that, that are not, um, uh, you know, tied to anything. They're, they're just going to get a check, and that check is going to be anywhere from 100 bucks to, you know, several thousand dollars. Wow. Which makes a big difference for a lot of these students. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll probably have 150 of them this year. And, uh, and so we're going to have our celebration. We're fundraising for that. Uh, last year, we gave over $50,000 to the students. So we'd like to at least meet that this year, um, especially given that, that, that recognition of their hard work this year is even more valuable. I think a student that can, can live up to the standards of what it means to be an, um, an EIS scholar during a pandemic, during a time when there's so much disruption, is really somebody that needs to be recognized and rewarded for that. And so, you know, I'm committed and our family foundation is donating and, and committed to give, give these students um, some money to pay for books or pay for, for um, you know, the transportation to, to school. Or they, and they can use it however they want. Um, but, and there's, so there's no strings tied, uh, tied to the money we give them. And then some of the funds go to, to, uh, to support education and freedom, the, and, and all the work we do for, for the students um, at the school. So that's coming up at the end of this month. It's going to be virtual. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get that, that information out to your uh, – if you, if you go to our, our website, um, you'll, you'll, you'll certainly see the, the key information on how to, how to sign up, how to donate, how to get involved. But, again, it's, I, I promise you, this is something where every dollar that you give us or you get involved will be something that will actually make a difference. I, this is not, this is not, you know, creating awareness or mm-hmm. trying to influence somebody. This is something where every dollar goes to a student and makes a difference in their lives. I think we all want, we want, we want to do things that, that, that matter that have impact. And that's, that's what this is about. You know, I'm, I'm happy to get up and just pound the table and, and try to raise as much money as possible because I know it's going straight to the kids. It is really something that's going to make a difference for them and, and, uh, and to be a blessing to them. And, and boy, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited about it. Mark, it's been a pleasure and look forward to this big event at the end of the month. And again, you can find out more with educationisfreedom.org. You guys are absolutely wonderful. We must have you on again real soon. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much, Chris. Keep up the good work. Appreciate you. As we are approaching Earth Day, we've produced a seven-minute national interview with the CEO of Conservation International, M. Sanjian, on the pandemic's impact on nature and where we go from here. The interview is hosted by Karina Delgado from Washington, D.C.'s 94.7 The Drive. Hey, friends, it's Karina Delgado from The Morning Drive on 94.7 The Drive with a special treat for you on this Earth Day. We got to speak with M. Jane, the CEO of Conservation International, to have a deeper discussion about Earth Day, how we can help, and the effects of the pandemic on our planet. Let's dive right in. Going to be honest with you, things are looking real different than they were last year around this time. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, please? Well, you know, honestly, like last year, we basically had to put Earth Day on hold. So all the celebrations, all the events, all the planning, you know, we were facing an uncertainty in terms of what our future looked like of unparalleled proportions. And so many of those activities were were delayed or kicked back. The challenge, of course, is that, you know, this is quite literally the most important decade for humanity. Science is very clear on this. What we do over the next 10 years will affect the course of our planet, of humanity, for probably the next 300 years or more. So we're now already one year back. It's almost like doing a 10-lap 10, 10, uh, race, and you, you haven't left the starting gate, uh, and one lap's gone. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of urgency uh, to our steps this year, and I think we really need to get going. Well, speaking of that one lap specifically, I think a lot of people are under the impression that we are ahead uh, in this race because of the pandemic. But I, I heard that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, no, not necessarily true. So I think it's a mixed record. Uh, so certainly some things about emissions in terms of climate change 
did uh, tick downwards. So we obviously traveled less by air, cruise ships were in harbors, so in industrial production dropped. But the world's coming back with a bit of a vengeance uh, in, in kind of the good way. Like, you know, production is ramping up, and I think people will be in a hurry to catch up. So I don't see that trend sort of lasting very long. Mm-hmm. I think more worryingly, this past year, you know, things like deforestation, forest fires, uh, illegal poaching, uh, things like that, uh, activities that harm the environment actually ticked up in many places mm. because there were fewer people watching, because there were fewer resources available for monitoring. There were fewer park guards. There were fewer people in the forest. Sure. And so what you're finding is a real mixed bag, whereas, you know, in some cases, yes, emissions did increase, but in other cases, it actually went up. And my big worry is that as next year, as, as this sort of next you know, year opens up before us, we don't go back to making the same mistakes we've done for the past few decades. Right. It's time for us to move forward for sure. we got to learn from our mistakes. Uh, can you speak for a moment about what's going on in Kenya? Kenya, you know, to be honest, it has a fairly strong park service and a, and a fairly strong conservation community. So ethics on conservation are pretty strong. But, you know, a lot of Kenya, a lot of the parks, a lot of the protected areas, the natural areas are really dependent on tourism, mm-hmm. ecotourism, if you like. And when tourism came to a halt, some of the most fabled landscapes in Kenya, like the Masai Mara Game Reserve, you know, where if you, you know, turn on television and watch it, you'll see, you know, the wildebeest migrations crossing the river, you know. All of those huge migrations of animals take place essentially on community land. And the reason these communities end up protecting this landscape is because they're getting revenue from tourism. But that went to almost zero last year because international travel, you know, came to a, to a halt and people couldn't go there. Oh, I see. So we, Conservation International, along with some others, stepped in. And in that case, we provided a loan um, called the Mara Rescue Fund, uh, basically a loan program to tide these communities over until we think tourism can recover and, and, and you know, bring back some funding to these communities. Well, that's outstanding. So obviously doing big things with Conservation International, but small things make a difference too. So can you tell our listeners, what are some things that they can do in order to help on Earth Day? Well, I urge folks to go check out um, our website. So, you know, visit conservation.org backslash tips. And we've got lots of little tips and tricks for you to reduce your impact on Earth Day. I think for me, you know, as I try to navigate this, I think small actions and big actions both matter. Mm. You've got to do them both. It's almost like being a conscious consumer or being a conscious citizen. So first and foremost, I would really urge everyone to get a little bit involved. You know, dip your toe in. Get to know a local organization or international organization like ours or any of the others. Just get a little more informed. In terms of your own personal life, the thing that I really watch for now is what I cook, how much food I waste. Mm. It turns out that your home really is kind of the big way in which you have an impact on climate. And if you're smart about what you buy and smart about how little you waste, you not only save money, but you're actually saving the plant as well. And then when you think about travel, you know, I know for a fact that I am obviously going to travel for work in the future, but I'm going to do fewer trips. I'm going to stay in country longer. So when I go, I'm doing fewer flights, but when I'm there, I'm taking more time to really learn about the place. So change those habits just a little bit as well. And then support companies that have high environmental standards. One of the things that I really noticed last year with virtually every corporate partner that Conservation International works with, whether it's MasterCard or Apple, um, you know, or P&G, they didn't stick with it. They doubled down. They really accelerated their environmental commitments. So Mm -hmm. ask companies to do that, support them. And then, of course, you know, politics does matter. Get engaged. Ask your representative, elected uh, representatives what they're doing about nature, what they're doing about the environment. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. And for our listeners that would like to get more involved, you can log on at conservation.org. Brought to you by Odyssey's One Thing program.
And joining us right now is Anton Lucky, the interim president of the Urban Specialist. Anton, you're a longtime friend of mine. I appreciate you joining us this morning. I appreciate you for having me, Chris. You know, I'm a big fan of Chris. I'm a big <laughs> fan of you, man. I appreciate that. And again, I've, I've had you on 105 through the fan um, last year when there were the social justice parades going on and, and the uh, movement. And I wanted to let people know what you've been doing because you and the end and the uh, urban specialists actually brokered the first gang truce in Dallas between the Crips and the Bloods. You've got a history because you spent some time in prison and you're able to turn your life around. And now you guys have been showing individuals how they can reach their full potential and helping change the culture of the communities around here. Correct. 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 Yes, we have. Can you talk about your story first? Cause, cause that's, that's what has reached a lot of kids and how they know that there's some hope for them and they don't have to go down the senseless violence road. Can you talk about what happened with you and, and how you were able to change your life? Okay. Yeah, Chris, uh, sure, man. I, I try to be brief as possible, but, uh, I was born and raised here in Dallas, uh, born and raised in South Dallas, uh, particularly a section called East Dallas, it's inside of South Dallas, uh, to a single mother. My father would, went to prison when I was nine months old. Uh, so for me, I focused a lot of myself coming along as a kid in, in my schoolwork, uh, and I advanced quickly. I became an A on a road student and even on to a talented and gifted student, uh, and so, and I love my work. I love uh, bringing home those good grades. My grandparents were my uh, inspiration. Uh, my grandfather worked for the city of Dallas for about 40 years until he retired, and he always instilled like those good values of work ethic and treating people with respect in that whole nine yards. But then uh, I was up against a neighborhood and an idea that said survival. And so... At some point, uh, as a team, uh, me and a couple of my friends created the first blood gang here in Dallas. At that particular time, there was no uh, other gang than blood. As I just began to immerse myself into protecting myself and survival, uh, we created the first blood gang, uh, which I regret. Uh, ultimately, that led me into prison. And i never forget standing in front of a judge, and the judge told me that I was a minister of society, and sentenced me to prison when I was expecting to go home that day. And so in prison, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet a mentor who mm-hmm. believed in me. This mentor told me at the onset of my sentence that he, he watched me and he said, look, brother, he said, if you have the ability to lead these guys to do wrong, you also have the ability to lead them to do right. You're a leader. And when he told me, I had never heard that before. And so, it, it dawned on me, and it made me uh, start reflecting even more. And so this mentor, this was an older guy in prison, Willis Fleming, began to give me books to read. And I actually started reading those books, Chris. And as I began to educate myself, I denounced that gang that I started in prison. That's something you just you don't do. You no, know, that's strong, prison. man. You don't usually survive yeah. that. Yeah, you don't denounce no gang. That makes you crazy. But I was so convicted by what I was learning and what I didn't know uh, that I wanted to share that because I, as I was in prison, you had young guys coming in who were 16, 17 years old who had a lot of time who were representing the gang that we started. And so one day in prison, I'm looking on the news, and I see this guy in my neighborhood talking the exact same language that I had been talking in prison. And wow. he was with my cousins in my neighborhood. Oh, no. Like, we got to end gang violence. And I immediately, Chris, wrote, wrote my cousin and said, man, whoever that guy you're talking to, connect him to me. Not knowing mm-hmm. that my cousin was telling him that if you're going to do something in this neighborhood, you have to get with our cousin who was in prison. And so that guy was Bishop Omar Jawar. The late, great Omar Jawar. The late, great Omar Jawar, man. I was released from prison a couple of months later. I met up with Bishop Omar, and when he started telling me about what his plans were for the neighborhood, about how we can use brothers who have, who may have been in trouble, but who we can change, if we could change their character, then their characteristics would have a market advantage in saving young people. He was singing my song. And so 
I, I handed him something I wrote up in prison, and it was exactly what he had just said to me verbatim. And from that point, we said, man, we have to begin to do the work in neighborhoods to reduce violence and hold ourselves accountable for the violence that we see in our community. So our focus was on how do we save these youth? How can we save youth from making the choices that myself made and others? How can we do that? And so first thing he told me, he said, we have to go to the, we have to go to the crib neighborhood of my rivals and we have to make peace. Mm-hmm. I remember telling him, I said, hey, bitch, <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't think that far into it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. That's, that requires some surgery. <laughs> yeah, that caused a real surgery. And so, but he convinced me, man, and I went to my rival uh, gang uh, and asked him for peace. You know, I came into their neighborhood uh, unannounced, without any weapons, really believing that God was doing something here. And the guys in that neighborhood, man, they heard us out. And they allowed us uh, passage to work with those young people because what we said to them was, "These we have too many young people losing their lives over this senseless violence, and we have to do something about it." So they allowed us, and from that, we was able to get 270 or more gang members together at Two Partners Restaurant right there on Robbie Cullen. Oh yeah, right and by Fair Park. That. Yep. Yes. And we brought these guys together, man, to say how can we have peace and, and what have you. And then a week or so later, we did a peace signing where we had about 400 gang members, Bloods and Crips, who signed a peace treaty and said that we would, we would begin to work together. And that became 21 years later of the work that we do, Urban Specials, has been doing so far. So we've been really inside neighborhoods advocating for us to be accountable, advocating for young people to have exposure and opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have. And so we've seen the success of that, man. And so that's been kind of the, the nature of, uh, of the work that we've been doing here in Dallas and have transcended to other cities across the country. Visiting with Anton Lucky, the interim president of Urban Specialists. You guys, by the way, uh, received the International Humanitarian Award. You guys are nationwide. In fact, you're nationally recognized, 501c3, headquartered here in Dallas, and you mentioned before you've got some other branches as well, but can you talk about how Bishop Omar Jawa, the late great Bishop Omar Jawa, I'm going to go ahead and say this now, he passed away recently from COVID. Can you talk right. about how that has affected the organization? And I was shocked as you were. Yeah. And I think the it made national headlines. It made all the TV stations and everybody was just shocked. And of course, our condolences to his family and all of everybody in the organization. The passing of Bishop Omar, uh, my mentor, my role model, the first person out of prison to believe in me, was very huge. It's a huge void uh, that left an urban specialist because Bishop was the face. He was the person who could had this unique talent, this transformative power that he's seen in every individual, every person uh, that he came in contact with. Uh, he we lost a giant in Bishop. I mean, his work will live on forever. Um, and all the stuff that he did, I mean, he was the first person that gave me these kind of principles that I live by. You know, one is such as no matter what happens to you, you're responsible for what you do for you. Uh, stuff like only inspired people can inspire people, you know, and, and Bishop was a great, great asset and a loss to our organization because he represented all that you would want to see in a leader. I mean, the compassionate, the family man, the spiritual man, the person who had this intuitive knowledge about culture and people and how to bring people together. uh, It's a very, very huge loss for us uh, into his family and into the organization. Uh, He's paved the way. I mean, he, dropped so many jewels uh, since I spent 21 years alongside of him doing this work. He has been the sole reason uh, that I attribute for me being the person that I am because he just had this unyielding belief in people. Uh, and so that was kind of the basis of our connection when I met him. It was that belief. You know, Bishop has done a lot around Dallas in terms of uh, really bringing equity to neighborhoods, but doing it in a way that it takes into account 
the accountability factor that we have to have as a people in terms of dealing with our neighborhoods. And he taught me that. He taught me that in the sense, in that instance, when he took me to a neighbor to a neighborhood that I had totally disagreed with, mm-hmm. to say that we have to find this kind of unity and synergy together, and that at the forefront has to be our ability to say our kids and our communities does better. And so he taught me that. And that's in the DNA of all of the work that the urban specialist has done over the years in Dallas, uh, building those kind of relationships, bringing you to board meetings and to to, uh, executive meetings where he'll bring guys like me to the table, not just speaking for me, but bringing me to the table to meet different individuals because I think he understood that, uh, exposure expand expectations and so having bishop uh having bishop gone has been a very uh hard hit for the organization but i'm 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 happy and i'm delighted in the fact that i was able uh, like others to spend time with him and to really watch him and understand and get and draw upon those lessons and those principles that he inspires to not just me but to everybody he came encounter with uh it was a national loss uh for bishop that was my mentor uh that was my big brother i mean that brother he was my sounding board mm-hmm. and so now in this in this new iteration uh the, the board has voted me as new president to continue that legacy of what bishop talked uh and and the legacy that he had i mean even with the hill america uh campaign that we have going this nationally i think that speaks to the essence of who he was, uh, because as we look across our nation's landscape today, it's a growing concern about injustice uh, that, that that just seems to be ever growing. But Bishop taught us that America can, can draw strength from its supported ideals. You know, those ideals of equal rights, inclusion, and empowerment that's reflected in our Declaration of Independence. You know, those very mm-hmm. principles are the playbook. He said for national and cultural transformation that will begin to heal Americanists and its institutions. And so Bishop has, has set the playbook, uh, for us to take this, take this movement to the next level in terms of trying to bring not just our neighborhoods, uh, where we're warring and the violence in our neighborhoods together, but even in the, uh, institutions, even in, in our social and political realities that, those same principles that we espoused upon when we first began can apply in this arena because it's mm-hmm. it's taking taking individuals who don't agree, like myself and Grover, say of the who was the leader of the Crips, and saying, Man, what do we agree on and what do we fiercely agree on? And how do we push that in this current narrative? How do we say, Okay, I'm not gonna be stuck on my position of what I disagree. How can we find that stuff that we agree on and push it? Because Bishop believes that there is a reservoir of hope that runs deep within people that make that'll make our cities and our nations and our states great, our neighborhoods great. And so that's why he was doing the Hill America tour, which we will continue to do with just one mission in mind, you know, to revive hope and bring healing to our nation. Mm-hmm. And it's a collaborative platform. And so his DNA is all in there. You'll see that as we go forward in this new iteration of Urban Specialists and Hill America and our OGU product, which is about finding those guys who have been marginalized and saying, look, you need to be accountable. We can teach you if you change your character. Your characteristics got advantages. Our young people need you. And so we've been doing a lot of stuff around violence, and we've been cultivating these unique mentors, catalyzing them and shifting them back out into Dallas to say, how can we make Dallas a whole city? How can we make Dallas an equitable city? How can we make Dallas uh, a great city for our kids to go in, grow up in, whether they're in North of, uh, 30 or South of 30? And so that's been all the DNA of Bishop Omar, and it has fell on my shoulders uh, and our organization to carry that work forward, which we intend to do. You know, you can handle this. You've been around with him for so many years. In fact, let's say it was 23 years of promoting the strong families, helping to right. strengthen communities advocating for peace by working diligently to curb violence, plaguing the urban communities. And as you mentioned, Bishop Omar created a template 
to reach across different kind of communities where you can right. find commonality. And that's what I think a lot of people are missing. They kind of double down or dig in on what they believe in, but they don't try to understand the other side or at least say, well, at least we can agree on this. And right. that's where you guys have been able to make some traction, right? Right. We we cut our teeth. And I think that's what's different in the activism and the movement of what we we do that I that I know that's uniquely to us and it's kind of our niche. Mm-hmm. We cut our teeth on our ability to reach across the aisle. So our we don't we're not scared about someone who has a different opinion or a different uh idea from us. We look at that as a way to open up conversation and understanding. That's education and so that's one of the things that we kind of landed on. You know, we've been known here in Dallas as that organization who reaches across the aisle. You know, we have a multi multicultural uh, network of people that we work with. And, right. and, and it's not based on our grief, our disagreements. It's more so about what do we agree on? What do we agree? And we found that most people, we agree on some of the same issues. Yeah. But we're so busy screaming at each other that we're not listening to hear places where we agree and so that's been our work our work has been bringing people together of all nationalities and saying how can we solve this issue how can we heal communities and it starts from the top and it it, it flow down to the bottom how do we heal communities how do we provide equity across the board and how do we take a take a how do we be accountable for our own stuff so a lot of times we don't be accountable to the, the mess and the stuff that's in our own backyard. So we we so busy looking at someone else's backyard. Mm-hmm. But we, in the, in, in the process of creating these kind of platforms, these kind of spaces for conversation, it go it implies that we are accountable for the situation that's happened in our own yard, in our own neighborhood. And so that's been Bishop DNA, that's been my DNA, and that's been our partnerships DNA. You know, it's been all about that. And I think right now, as we're dealing with uh, – uh, the George Floyd trial and the new Dante Wright now more than ever for that voice. And that's why we appreciate you, Chris, for giving platforms for a different kind of conversation. Sure. It's a courageous conversation. And again, the way you approach it is the key. I think it's, I think you guys are so unique. And again, for those who don't know the urban, the urban specialists, you, the Heal America tour, you guys went all over the country from Detroit, Dallas, Minneapolis, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, Mississippi, uh, to discuss citizenship and racial justice. But more importantly, you also helped secure over $10 million to for over 4,000 people to receive help during the COVID-19 pandemic. You had oh, to yeah. take care of families who had problems with uh, reaching each other or, or getting getting out of the debt with the, with the economy or or help, helping with hospital bills. Can you talk about some of those things? Well, because you guys do so many things that people don't even know. Yes, right when the COVID hit, man, our partners, uh, an organization called Family uh, Independent Initiative, an organization called Stand Together, we galvanized quickly to say, how can we use our donor network to? Uh, impact family to help family because we knew it was families out here that was hurting uh when everything shut down and man mm-hmm. instantly uh our network raised like 150 million dollars man and we across nationwide the country, yeah yeah dallas in particular we gave away uh a half a million dollars we gave 500 dollars to, to 500 families that was the first first round and then we did another 500 dollars to uh 500 more families in the second round and it was just like instant money, quickly, just to say we care, we help you, and and and, and I'm gonna tell you another. It was thing. A, it was a stimulus check before stimulus checks. Yeah, it was before the stimulus check. And one thing that we said, and I can credit Bishop with this and our partners, was that we wanted to make that money accessible without strings attached. So it was a one-time, uh, 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 one-time fund. You get that. It wasn't hard. All you had to do was say you have been affected by by COVID. That was the only only requirement and and that money would instantly deposit into your account and so a lot of people uh a lot, they did some news stories a lot of people uh received those funds and were very appreciative of those funds but it's those kind of niches we had some local partners uh john burnbury and, and blake zell who got with us and said man let's just show up at people's house and 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 give groceries man i know we spent over fifteen thousand dollars just showing up at people's house giving them groceries, toiletries, 
uh, um, gift cards to just say we care, man. We care about our community. And there's a lot of issues and uh, activities that we've done around those kind of uh, those kind of deals where we just went out and just blessed families because we understood that it hit hard for the communities that we serve. And you've served not, like I said, just not only Dallas, but different areas around the country too. But here in Dallas alone, uh, I remember you guys got a um, a federal capacity building grant, the uh, CEY, serving mm-hmm. 18 Dallas ISD schools in the area of youth violence prevention and gang intervention. And that's just one arm of what yeah. the ar- urban specialists are all about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we uh, we got that grant and we went into the schools to uh, because one of the things we found, Chris, was that a lot of the, the, the drama that was happening, uh, these kids would meet up at the school would be the meeting ground because they came from different neighborhoods, according to the feeder patterns. And we said that was a source of contention. And so how do we go into those schools to prevent and monitor the peace that we had achieved with the uh with the peace signing. Mm-hmm. And I want to just thank this principal, uh, Mr. Ward. He was a principal at James Madison High School. It was the first school that we went into. That brother didn't know us, but he took a chance on us. When we went into Madison High School, they had 382 gang answers the, pri- the previous year. When we sent our guys in there, when he took a chance on us and we sent our guys in there, the following year, the gang incidents went down to two. The referrals went down. The discipline went down. The extracurriculum went up. It just, and, and this became a model. And, and you had, an, you had an, uh, a college, the University of Minnesota, did a blind study that we didn't know and, and showed those results, showed that data that when we went into those schools and we began to create these violence-free zones mm-hmm. and what have you. But it was based on that grant that we got. Uh, that we was able to do that. And we just expand, we expanded it to about 16 schools. And we've been working in communities ever since, you know, working with families, connecting them to resources, mentoring kids. It's just, it's been great, man. The work has been great. And I'm super pleased and, and, and impressed with what, what we've seen in terms of the data. You guys have been so great at what you do because you have a methodology. I mean, right. you're trying to equip individuals, providing safe and productive environments to evaluate their values and learn to change behavior. And how you just gave an example of some of the success rates. Can you talk about some of the other things you got going on and, and, and working on like the positive exchange? Oh yeah, we have, and I'm going to tell you another one. That's my favorite. Man. Okay. I got some local business guys, man, who are in Highland park and university park who host, our kids, we take kids from South Dallas, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, who some have never been out the neighborhood. We take them to Highland Park and University Park to some of our local friends, and we have dinner at their house, dinner and conversations uh, with, the, we, you know, with the express purpose of introducing kids to other cultures and other races and other people and other ideas. And we have, we have uh, different professionals who talk to our kids, who they will otherwise never get a chance to talk to. So we do some of those kind of deals with uh, our young people. We have a Kingdom Village program, and this this program is expressly for kids who have a parent that's incarcerated. You know, if they have a parent incarcerated, we try to connect them to the parent. And also, we do we do we bring in successful people who who come from homes where they had a parent incarcerated, and we allow them to bond in jail with the kids. We have a Wild program that we're doing right now where we have young people connecting with entrepreneurs and, and figuring out what they want to do with their community, and we, we fund in that. Uh, we have another program that we're doing uh, more recently is our Dallas Interrupters program. And, and it's, if you're listening, you can go to dallasinterrupters.com and, and see the work that we're doing where we're sending people in hotspot neighborhood in conjunction with law enforcement to say, how can we reduce the crime in the neighborhood by exposing people to resources and, and programs that they otherwise wouldn't have access to? Uh, and that program is up and well uh, in four different neighborhoods here in Dallas. Man, we just have a, a, a holistic approach of, of a lot of our programs that we do, and we just have this idea that we believe in people, that we believe that we can reduce the violence, the uptick in violence that you're seeing in Dallas right now. But it's going to take the rest of us, 
to get involved. You mm-hmm. know, I think it's a part that all of our listeners can play. You don't have to be necessarily in the neighborhood. You can support an organization. You can provide some technical support to some of these uh, OGs and people, mentors that we have going into these neighborhoods. It's a, it's a part that we all have to play to make Dallas the city that we want Dallas to be. And it's, that's the work of the Urban Specialists. We're trying to make Dallas be that gleaming city that we know it can be. And you guys are located south of Lamar, right over there, um, just south of I-30. Everybody knows right across the street from the police department, the police yeah. station. Can you can give, give some more information about you guys, how they yeah, can reach yeah. you on the website in the entire nine yards? Okay. Our website uh, is uh, urbanspecialist.org, and it's urbanspecialist with an S, dot org. If you go on our website, you can see a lot of the initiatives that uh oh and it's that, very impressive very yeah. impressive yes and you can and if we have a and if you want to just be a partner to the work that we're doing uh inside of our communities inside of dallas you can just log on it's a place to say partners network if you want to be a part of that network you have something to offer we encourage you uh to get involved with, with those kind of efforts. we even have a we have a program where i go in and train uh police officers how unique is that? Wow! So what am I? You know background. what? When you when you think about it, they really should know how to deal with the environment that they're put in. They got to yeah. learn how to negotiate the environment that they're in. And someone like you, who's been in that neighborhood, who's been in prison, who knows the ins and out, why not? Right. It, it's 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 unique. It's a partnership with the Crook uh, Institute. But I think what's good, and it's one of the highest tra- highest rated trainers because uh, the officers have to do a. A blind survey, uh, and so they do that. It's one of the highest rated training, but it's good, Chris. It's good in turn because you it, it deals with perception, it deals with biases, it deals with prejudice. A lot of times, a lot of these incidents that we see, they're not racist. You know, they're not racist. Right. We try to paint every situation as being this is a racist individual, this is a racist situation. Sometimes it just has to do with prejudice and the way we look. You know, as, you know, so. And we all have prejudice. We all have ways in which we view certain things. Yeah, biases. We have those biases. And so, and, and that don't necessarily mean that it's a racist bias. We just have to be able to judge things based on the merit. And we have to be able to see that we have a lot of stuff in common that all it requires is a real conversation where we're listening to each other, uh, to understanding each other. Because there are cultural differences. I tell the people in the police academy that, look, man, in the police academy, you are taught that the hand is the threat. And so you're always looking for movement of the hand. I said, but in urban communities, we talk with our hands. I talk with our hands. Yes. So that don't necessarily mean that, you know, that I'm a, that I'm a threat. Right. And I also teach the community that the police department is not, is not a monolithic idea. So one officer doesn't necessarily represent the whole department. And, and so if you look at it like that, just in the same way as an individual in a neighborhood, uh, just because they're born in the neighborhood or a certain uh, zip code, that doesn't necessarily make them a criminal in the same way that when you look at a police officer, it doesn't necessarily make them racist. You know, it's, it's conversation and it's proximity that got to happen that builds relationships. And that's what we need more of in this, in, in this current narrative, man. And so that's what, some of the stuff that we're pushing. We're really looking to bridge that gap between law enforcement in our communities because we believe that that gap can be closed, that that, that can really happen. We're not just, you know, just being facetious. We really believe that that can happen, and it happens through proximity. It happens through education. It happens through us being willing to listen past our stereotypes, our biases, and our prejudices. We have to really challenge ourselves. I tell my friends all the time, all of my white friends, I said, if you are not able to tell me and talk to me and conversate with me about what you really think and what you really feel, then you, you're not being inauthentic. You're not being authentic to me. Mm-hmm. And if I can't do the same, I say because when we do that, whether, whether those prejudices are true or not, when we do that, that's what true education happens. If we start right there, that's what a exactly. true education happens, and we get to know each other, and then we can then begin to build our neighborhoods beyond this, uh, build our communities past yelling and screaming and one person taking a position that we could never. We have to understand that, and I'll say this, Chris, we have to understand that 
during the civil rights era, Dr. King, all of the strategies that he espoused and he employed was rooted in that agape love. He had love for the individual, and that's what's missing. We have to get back to having love for each other. And as we have love, we can then be able to understand each other. We can understand. I can understand your position, and I can. We can work from that place to find a place that that works for everybody. And that's what we're pushing. That's the new iteration, or the or the continued iteration of Urban Specials and the work of Bishop Omar that he he gave to us. Well, let me tell you something. We have got to have you back on because everything you're saying is so true. And these are the reasons I'm glad that the urban specialists are doing what they do. Anton, got to get you back on real soon, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Man, thank you, Chris. You the GOAT. You the legend, man. It's an honor for me to be here. You continue doing what you're doing because you are a a treasure, too, for our city. We must stand with you. I appreciate that, Anton. All right, I'm Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations doing great things in our community right here on Better Living. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.